Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry at Midwestern Seminary and Spurgeon College. And again, I'm in the beautiful Spurgeon Library studio where we have a great guest uh, this morning to talk about prayer and his new book. When it comes to prayer, most Christians pretend everything's fine but secretly feel as though they're fumbling through the dark. I don't know if that describes you. It certainly does me from time to time. What is the right way to pray? What do we say? Is it supposed to be as boring as it feels sometimes? How long and how often do we pray? How honest should we be in our prayers? Well, in their new book, Where Prayer Becomes Real, How Honesty with God Transforms Your Soul, Spiritual formation experts and authors Kyle Strobel and John Coe invite readers on a journey to discover real, honest prayer, the kind of prayer that connects, revives, and transforms, that feels real, just as God created it to feel. Kyle Strobel is professor of spiritual theology and formation at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. A popular speaker, Strobel is the author of Formed for the Glory of God and co-author of Beloved Dust and The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb, which I read earlier this year and is very excellent. There's a new edition of that book coming out later this year. But he's here today, Kyle's here today to talk about his new book with John Coe, Where Prayer Becomes Real. Kyle Strobel, how are you, brother? Hey, man. Good to be with you, Jared. I'm doing well. How how exactly does one become a spiritual formation expert? I know. I, I twinge a little bit in my soul every time I hear that said. These, I, mean, <laughs> I think these, it just means you get a job. Yeah, these publicists, <laughs> they put these things together, and they feel real good, so you don't correct them, you know? Uh, I remember before I actually, uh, you know, before I had even uh, won any kind of award that w- is actually worth mentioning to anyone, I remember um, I had a publisher that was describing me as an award-winning author, and I had I had to ask them, what are you talking about? <laughs> and they had pulled up on my CV or something that I had listed when I was in college. I won like an honorable mention from Christianity and Literature Journal for some article that I wrote on Milton. And I thought, that's not even a thing. Like it didn't even come with anything. You know? <laughs> but all right, award-winning author. I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah. So an expert on spiritual formation is somebody who has been expertly formed spiritually is what I'm assuming. <laughs> or just an expert at telling other people how to be spiritual. That's right. It's, it's a little more of the latter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your new book with John Coe, Where Prayer Becomes Real. First of all, w- what do you mean uh, by prayer not being real? In, in, in what sense might people feel like prayer isn't real? Yeah, you know, one of the things we've noticed in prayer, and John and I, John's a mentor of mine, so he's been talking about these things for 30 years. I've been talking probably the last 15 years about these things to to churches in seminary contexts and undergrad contexts. and you know, when I talk to folks about prayer, one of the things that becomes really obvious to me is that they have a theoretical understanding of what prayer could be or maybe should be in their minds. And and they have kind of axioms in their minds, like, you know, they have the gospel somewhere in there, right? Until they start praying. And then all of that falls apart. And so prayer becomes a place for people where they do their most pretending, Mm. I, and, and if you want a biblical, biblical example of this, you know, one of the things I think was, is that a speech Adam gives to God in the garden, right, where he manages, you know, honestly, in, in a brilliant manner, right, where he kind of throws Eve under the bus, kind of semi blames God for the whole circumstance. And, and he's in God's presence, and he's kind of wheeling and dealing. 
And he isn't actually being honest. I mean, one of the things that strikes me about the fall narrative particularly is why doesn't Adam say, oh, thank the Lord he's here? Yeah. Why does he say something much more akin to run, hide? (laughs) Right, right. And I think a lot of our prayer lives are much more like run, hide. Mm. And instead of embracing the gospel all the way down, instead of embracing the truth that it was in our sins that he died for us, and there's now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, we actually pray as those who aren't really convinced that there's no condemnation, that we're really not fully convinced he can still handle our sinfulness. And so we try to pray not in truth, but in our devotional goodness. Mm. And that's where prayer goes to die in our in our estimation. Yeah. Um, would you say that part of the problem also is just being able to conceive of Jesus or, you know, as a real person himself, that sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, when you're praying to, you know, you're talking to an invisible person, yeah. So you know, that can make the uh, experience feel, in a sense, less real, wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm. How, totally. How do we, yeah, how do we, you know, counteract that, um, you know, that idea of, of, I'm just speaking into, I'm speaking to the force or to some, Ethereal, yeah. you know, ethereal thing, and not to an actual embodied person, even though I can't see him, an embodied uh, person. Yeah, well, you know, for us, you know, one of the key things here is understanding what we call the good news of prayer, and and that is going to press like like the gospel always does, right? It's going to be antithetical to our fleshliness and our fleshly impulses and desires, and and that's not just sinfulness, right? That that is all of the impulses of the flesh. And so when we outline the kind of what is the good news of prayer, I mean, one of the things that is, I think, profoundly good news is that God has told us, look, you, you don't know how to pray. <laughs> you don't know how to pray, pray as you ought. Right? And that we should have stopped there for a second. Like, praise God that, that he knows. Yeah. Look, you guys don't know how to do this. And the solution, interestingly enough, is that prayer isn't something we create. We don't start prayer. We enter it. Mm. Right? Before we utter a word, the Son and the Spirit are already interceding for us. And we're told the Spirit, in Romans 8, we're told the Spirit groans with groanings too deep for words. And so now, suddenly, when I come before God, and there will always struggle with, I think, the reality of, do my prayers kind of hit the ceiling? You know, what, what am I doing here? And, and in many ways, most of us find prayer to be frustrating because we're wrestling with ourselves in prayer. And, you know, one of the things I've learned over the years with, um, you know, my, my academic work is in Jonathan Edwards studies. So I'm a kind of an Edwards scholar. So I've done a lot of work on Edwards and, and his view of spiritual formation, for instance. And when I was wrestling with him on these things, I came across the Puritan view of soliloquy, which I thought was so profound, where they're sitting with the Psalms and they're saying, why, why do the psalmists sometimes talk to themselves in prayer? Yeah. You know, in Psalm 62, Psalm 62, one starts with this really bold affirmation for God alone, my soul waits in silence. And I say things like that in prayer sometimes. And I don't know about you, but I feel like it's almost like my conscience pangs a little bit. And it's like, well, alone, would we really say for God alone myself? Like there's other things my soul waits for in silence. (laughs) Like I'm waiting to see what happens to the Lakers. I'm waiting to see, you know, there's all sorts of things my soul waits for. And then four verses later in verse five, he then speaks directly to his soul, and he says the exact same words. He says, my soul, wait for God in silence. And I remember, th- as a seminary student, I would read things like that, and I'd be frustrated because they, they, they conceptually didn't make sense. Like, well, which is it? <laughs> what, <laughs> right, right. Was it true or not? And then 
it wasn't until I began praying the Psalms that I realized, yes, this is exactly how prayer works. That when I find myself in the presence of God, see the problem with the presence of God, and this is what the fall teaches us, is in our brokenness, in our sinfulness, we don't want the presence of God. And our our heart comes out of itself. And so when I enter prayer, all sorts of things happen. My mind wanders, I fall asleep, I begin questioning all sorts of things. This is a moment where I'm called to faith, trusting not my words, not my savvy ability to pray, but I'm trusting in the prayers of the Son and the Spirit. Mm. And I'm trusting the Spirit already prays for the deepest things of my soul. And so one of the, one of the images that came to me when we were writing this book is I, I, I think of God hearing us in stereo. And so, so to speak, like in one ear, he hears the groanings of the spirit. And remember that the spirit's groanings in Romans 8 are connected to the groaning of creation, where creation knows why it was created. It knows it was for created for the glory of God. It knows that it isn't fulfilling that. And so it's groaning. And so the spirit in our soul is groaning now because it sees our brokenness. The spirit himself is descended into the, the, the kind of wickedness, the rebellion, the sin, the brokenness, all of it, and prays from there. And then I started thinking, well, how do my words sound to God? If he hears the spirits groaning in reality, I realize, you know, most of my prayers are fantasy. Mm. I'm sending my avatar to pray, my cleaned up (laughs) evangelical avatar. And it looks good. It knows all sorts of nice theological, biblical terms. And it, it, it isn't praying the truth. And that, you know, the impulse that really kind of drove this book for us was, why is it that when we see the truth, are we more likely to turn to ourselves to fix it than bring it to God? So like when my mind wanders in prayer, I'm more likely to berate myself and try to become a better prayer in my flesh, quite honestly, than to say to God, God, look at this. I can't even attend to you. You're here with me. You're listening to me. I can't even focus on that because my mind has gone off to all sorts of other things. And it's precisely in those places of what feel like failure to me that, I, that, I, that we're actually suggesting these, these are not signs of failure. They're invitations of God to actually be with him in reality. You you mention um, in just the general concept of being of being real, being honest, being truthful, bringing your real self. Um, I mm-hmm. think that's vital to um, to prayer. You know, being an actual conversation <laughs> with someone that you're in relationship with. Um, at the same time, however, I, I know this is something you talk about in 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 the book. Um, how do you bring that messiness? How do you bring your true self? How do you speak honestly and forthrightly to God? while still acknowledging that he is God, like, you totally. know, I mean, there's yeah. a, uh, there's a reverence, there's a respectfulness, there's a, you know, the sense of hallowedness, uh, for mm-hmm. him and his name, where is that? I, I don't know what the word is balance or, you know, how do you, um, understand being your real true self while still understanding that this is the sovereign Lord of the universe that you're speaking to here. Yeah, no, let me say two things about it. This is such a great question. And it's, you know, let me tell you what my seminary students do. Because I've, you know, I've, I've, I've taught this to seminary students. This is now my, my seventh year. And I kept running into these walls with them on this. And I couldn't figure out at first what it was because they would say things. And I realized there's there, what they said, that there was running into a kind of roadblock. Yeah. And eventually I realized their, their difficulty is they, they were thinking, if I pray honestly, it 
feels like I'm not taking my sins seriously and I'm yeah. not representing God enough. And, and what I try to show them is now is, you know, the opposite of honesty is dishonesty, right? It isn't lack of reverence. It, it, right, it isn't, right. you know, it's being dishonest. And I think of Psalm 139 here as an interesting case study, right? Because David is going to pray in this Psalm some pretty bold things about his enemies. And it's interesting where David kind of unleashes the truth of himself before God. And yet before and after that, the first thing he does is he names the truth. God, you, you know, every you, you, in my mother's womb, you knit me together. Like you see it all and you know it all. He unleashes what he thinks is true about his situation, about what he's experiencing, about his enemies and all of it. And then he ends by saying, search me, O Lord. Know my heart. Test me. Know my every thought. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And I think, you know, one of the things this does is it is it leads us to name reality. And then it it always leads us to say, Father, <laughs> you are God, I am not. Not not my will, but yours be done, right? It's it's this this leading ourselves in truth to God and then naming reality so that we're coming into the presence of God as we are. But I think the danger is that most of us interpret reverence to think God actually can't handle yeah. the deepest truth. And we actually forget the gospel in prayer. I mean, I think this is where we forget that it was Leviticus that the call was don't draw near lest you die, whereas the imperative of Hebrews is therefore draw near precisely because who our great high priest is. That, that the blood of Christ has now cleansed these things so that we can bring them in the presence of God and draw near. Speaking of drawing near, what do you do? What, what would be your counsel for those who in, in times of prayer, maybe every time in prayer, have a sense or a feeling of the silence of God or the distance mm -hmm. of God? What could God be doing in times where prayer just seems boring or perfunctory or dry? Or I'm just throwing, you know, cotton balls off a brick wall here. There's, there's, there's no, uh, you know, what's God doing in, in those times? And, and, and what can we do that, that might help in those yeah, situations? Yeah. Totally. That's a great question. I, I hear this question so often. And it's, you know, one of the, one of the dangers I think that happens in the Christian life. When I, when I think of spiritual formation, um, Scripture uses this developmental um, notion of maturity, right? So sometimes we'll talk about being young in the faith, or you should be on solid food, now you're on milk. And so Scripture actually thinks in terms of our human maturation, and in parallel ways that it thinks about our spiritual maturation. And the danger with our youthfulness, right? In our youth, we codify a sense of what does it mean to be a good Christian? And usually it's tied, it's zeal, it's excitement, it's a certain kind of, if I were honest, a feeling of felt pleasure, right? Like every Bible study I go to, this is amazing, right? And you're excited and all these things. What's interesting is if, if we pay attention to, let's say, the evangelical spiritual tradition, like Edwards, for instance, Jonathan Edwards looks back at his life as a very saintly old man who everyone revered. And he says, you know, when I was a younger Christian, if I look back there, I think I was a better Christian back then than I am now. Mm. <laughs> Because he's still, he's still saying, he can see, like, I want to interpret Christianity based on those experiences, those are those feelings. He goes, but I know I'm more mature. I know I depend on God more. I know I trust his sovereignty more. And, and I think something like that happens in prayer where we enter into seasons where, wow, like, this is like pulling teeth, God. And that's what I said. That's exactly what you tell God. God, this feels like death. <laughs> right? This just, and you know, if you, it, I think one of the key things here is we need to remember 
it is not our job to generate experiences. Yeah. Whatever God has for us, our call is, Lord, what, how, what does it mean to be faithful to you here? And I think the problem is most of us have faulty expectations about the, the kind of felt nature of the Christian life. I mean, I think if you look at just two obvious examples, you know, the Exodus, after this visible, miraculous reality, God marches them without food or water into the desert for three days. And it's like, well, this is weird. Like, we, <laughs> where's water? Like, it's, you know, and they begin grumbling. And, and we're told in Deuteronomy 8, too, why does God do this? To test to see what was in their hearts. And that's exactly what happens in prayer. When prayer becomes dry, when Bible study becomes dry, when worship becomes, what comes out of your heart? And how do we now bring that to God in truth? God's always, God's always opening the heart to show us. And I think of, you know, in another biblical example would be 1 John 3, 19 and 20, where John tells us that for Christians, most will be before him, right? So in the presence of God and your heart condemns you. That's interesting. Most of my Christian life, when my heart condemned me, my assumption was I would, I, that I had to project that on God, right? So I thought, God's condemning me. Why, God, why are you condemning me here? But what John says is God is greater than your heart. And he knows everything. He already knows all of this. And so the push is always Godward. If your heart's condemning you, tell God and draw near. If everything's dry, tell God and draw near. Again, the, the only way to be with God is in reality. And so the, the goal is not to generate a different experience, but to say, God, this is where you have me. Praise God. What does it mean to be faithful here? You, you're talking about, and you're talking in the book about really retraining your heart. How, how do you adjust yourself to reality uh, to come yeah. down to the playing field of reality, which is the only uh, playing field where Christ will meet us on is, is in, in, in reality. How do you retrain your heart to um, experience prayer um, in, in that way, in the way that God intended? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think, you know, obviously all throughout scripture, we're getting these kind of reorientations to a reality that doesn't quite make sense to our vision and our flesh. And, you know, none of us want power and weakness. We want power and strength, right? <laughs> we, <laughs> right. You know, there, there's all sorts of things like that we find in scripture. Um, you know, Luke seven forty seven comes to mind when Jesus says, you know, the one who is forgiven much can love much, which means growth in the Christian life will be a growth in recognizing actually how deep our sin has gone. Um, but for us in the book, you know, there's a hinge point for us in the book, which is the Lord's Prayer. And this is a real training ground. I mean, the Psalms are as well, certainly. And we have a chapter on kind of what it means to pray the Psalms. But for us, the Lord's Prayer becomes the real conditioning prayer, where it's not it's interesting that the Lord taught us how to pray. And no, no, Christians have never really thought like, oh, this is the only prayer we pray, right? But for a lot of believers, I think the Lord's pers- it has an unusual place. It's like, well, what is this then? And, and really for us, it's this, this prayer that should condition and just kind of shape all of our praying. Like, what does it mean that all our prayers are conditioned by our Father who art in heaven? <laughs> um, not, not just my Father, right? We, we, we pray our father because we pray in and with the one who prayed my father. And heretically, it seemed, right? The Pharisees were very upset about this. Yeah. <laughs> so it made himself equal with God, right? What does it mean to pray, you know, forgive us our sins as we forgive those? And one of the things we talk about in the book is how, you know, in our, in our flesh, we actually ch- change that phrase in the Lord's Prayer. I don't want to pray that. I don't want to pray <laughs> forgive my sins. I forgive. No, I want to pray, no, forgive my sins. In a way, only you can, God. Don't 
don't forgive me as I forgive that, that that's just, that's, you know, that's troubling to me now. Well, now when I go to intercede or let's say I'm scrolling through Facebook and I see something that frustrates me, which is, I don't know, every other post on a social media feed. Well, how do I navigate that now? Do I silently curse that person? <laughs> do I write them off? Do I, or now is there, there a moment here where I say, Father, how, how do I lead forth in forgiveness as you have forgiven? How do I be present in prayer to another? Um, and this is, you know, for, for something like intercession, I think a lot of us think intercession is the easiest and most obvious way to pray. Intercession is profoundly messy. You know, we, we bring all sorts of envy and jealousy and um, misguided intentions in, into our intercession. Um, we are truly being with another in the spirit, Paul will say. <laughs> and and that, that means that all of our kind of relational kind of messiness comes out in our intercession. Well, how do I be honest with that? How do I be present to God? How do I do what Paul tells us to do in prayer in Colossians 4, 2, which is to be watchful in it? and attend, you know, being watchful in prayer was one of the fundamental notions of Puritan spirituality, because they always wanted to recognize the ways that our devotional life was actually kind of a mirage. It, it was actually our highest point of rebellion. It was, it, we like to pre-sanctify our devotion, whereas our own evangelical background always wanted to remind us, these are the filthy rags you're going to use to try to manage and manipulate God. And so, you know, it's, it's prayer in particular where that becomes messy, where we lose watchfulness and we think, oh, good, look what I've done. <laughs> right. Um, what does it look like to see prayer as an act of love or a, a, a not a means to, to know God's love? But, well, maybe a means to know God's love. What does it look like to be known and, and loved by God in the context of prayer? How does prayer fit into yeah. that, that desire, which we all have, whether we, you know, acknowledge it or suppress it or, or, uh, or not. Yeah. We all have that, that deep desire. How does prayer fit into that, that aim? Yeah. Well, and this is, I think this gets to what becomes at least on a practical level, very difficult actually, because we follow a God who does not meet our expectations. In one sense, he transcends all our expectations. Yeah. And in another sense, he leads us into the desert without food or water. <laughs> he doesn't <laughs> right. tell us why, right? Yeah. Um, you, you know, and I think of, Do you love me or not? <laughs> that's <laughs> right. 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 And, yeah. and that's the question. You know, and the question we're told when the author of Hebrews is meditating on that passage, um, that particularly the kind of um, water, waters of Meribah where they complain. And, and he, you know, he actually will say there that their, their great sin was not their complaining. It wasn't their being honest with God that was the problem. It was their questioning, God, are you with us or not? Mm. And this is where, you know, I think when we think of love and we think of God in particular, well, in any loving relationship, we, we recognize that honesty is fundamental. And this is where we really need to test our theological beliefs. So the problem with, with prayer, and I see this all the time with seminary students, and obviously that's different than the kind of, you know, seminary students, are, as you know, they're their own breed. <laughs> but like, for these, they're an interesting example with this because a lot of them will come into seminary and they're really devoted to trying to get their doctrine of the atonement right. You know, what did the cross do? And, 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 and great, we need to do that. I'm a theologian. Praise God, you know. But then when they go to pray, they try to atone for their sins. And, and they don't see that they actually haven't allowed their, their Bible and theological knowledge to shepherd them in prayer. 
And so when it comes to the love of God, when I go to pray and I and I have to be open to seeing the truth, I have to trust that God's always doing what he always has done. He will, like he says with the, with the Israelites in the Exodus, he is going to show us what is in our hearts in prayer. Like everyone Jesus ran into, you know, whenever Jesus ran into someone, they came out of themselves. So it was, you know, Peter falling at his feet. Lord, depart from me. I am a sinful man. Like they just come out. Well, in prayer, the same thing happens. So the question I want folks to wrestle with is, okay, let's say you go to pray. You fall asleep, right? You're, you're quote unquote praying. <laughs> you wake up and okay, you feel guilty. You feel bad. I failed. Or, you know, you've, you've, you've realized the last 10 minutes, I've just been thinking about what I've got to do this week and the, the kids and the tasks and all this sorts of other stuff. And you realize you weren't praying and right there, what do you do? Do you lie to God? I think that's what most of us do. God, God, sorry, I'll do better. Well, that's not getting you anywhere. <laughs> you're going to try harder. Like yeah. what, what do you think you're doing? Or do we say, Lord, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It was in my sins and failures and total inability that you died for me. It is by grace alone. It is by faith alone. It is in Christ alone. And then come to see this is precisely where prayer is real. Say, Father, what do you have for me here? Oh, look at this. Lord, I'm a mess. Like, I can't even, I can't even pray. Look at how much I'm trying to, to kind of create a life in my own power, or look at how much I worry. You know, one of the prayers we talk about is what we call a prayer of intention, which is a very simple sort of prayer. Sometimes, you know, I have little kids, so after a long day of work, I'll come home and I'll have to pray a prayer of intention sitting in the driveway. (laughs) Father, help me. Lord, I want to be faithful father. Lord, help me be with my kids. Lord, I'm tired. (laughs) I've been answering student emails all day about the syllabus, banging my head against the screen. Lord, (laughs) I, I need... I want to be present here. And, you know, we need to intend in truth, be with God in all of these things. And what we, what we don't realize is often our heart abandoned us in that place. And we, and it's because it doesn't feel like love to us. Like we, we really do have a very Disney view of love. Like we want love and we want the happily ever after. And what, you know, the, the beloved son was the, the beloved son in whom we now pray was the one who said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's precisely where his love leads us. And if we interpret that poorly, instead of entering that prayer, instead of praying those words after him, instead, we'll, we'll send our avatar to pray and pray all sorts of nice cleaned up prayers. And it won't be, it won't be in the truth and it won't open our hearts to him. And that's the real tragedy of prayer. Because honestly, if you pray the kinds of things you think you should pray, you simply probably, you won't pray. <laughs> it turns yeah, out. Yeah. Like if you, but once you start praying the truth, you'll realize, wow, prayer isn't actually that boring after all, because I really need God. Yeah. <laughs> and we're in a very desperate sort of world. And this is the present evil age. And so I need to pray in light of that reality. Yes. And, 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 and as you mentioned, in a lot of the reality of the cross as, as well, and, and the, um, the intercession of, of the gospel event. Um, a great, a great note to end on brother. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Oh, thanks so much, brother. So good to be with you, man. We've been talking with Kyle Strobel, co-author with John Cove, the new book where prayer becomes real, how honesty with God transforms your soul. It's new from Baker books. You can find it, uh, wherever good books are sold. And as always, dear listener, if you enjoy the podcast, Please give us a good review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. 
And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.